Welcome to the LarryInFishers.com podcast. I'm Larry Lannon. Pete Peterson was first elected to the Fishers Town Council and is now serving on the Fishers City Council. He's running for re-election in the Southeast Council District and is opposed by Paula Hudgel. I spoke with Pete Peterson about his campaign for re-election during the afternoon of Friday, March 15th. I'm at the Hamilton East Library. We're here at the Fishers Library, which is part of that system here at the Municipal Complex in Fishers. I'm in the Ignite space, and uh, this was what was once launch Fishers in its early days. They've since moved on to bigger and better quarters. But this is where artists have all sorts of activities. They have art supplies. We have a 3D printer here where we're located. And this uh, recording is being done in the TV uh, studio, which also has great acoustics, which is why I, I try my best to uh, get the space. And the people here at the library have been very, very uh, good at, at working with me on that. So if you want to see the Ignite space, all you have to do is come to the Hamilton East Library here in Fishers and just ask one of the librarians here in Ignite for a tour. They'll be more than happy to give you one. My guest is Pete Peterson. Pete is the incumbent candidate for Fishers City Council in the Southeast District. I believe it's also called District 1, is it not? I believe it is, Larry. Yes. But they're mostly Southeast District. So, Pete, welcome again. You've been uh, with us on podcasts before. Good to have you back. Thanks, Larry. Happy to be here. And uh, let's talk about this because uh, Fishers, as you well know, is a growing city. Our last municipal election was four years ago, so there are a lot of potential voters who may not be familiar with you, although you've been involved in city government since about 2012 as an elected official. Uh, just for the benefit of our audience who may not know, you just spend a couple of minutes and then talk about yourself and your background. Well, I think um, yeah, certainly people not knowing me would be interesting. <laughs> uh, I am typically the outspoken one on, on council by far, I think. Um, certainly I'm no short of an opinion and I'm not really hesitating to give it, uh, when I'm talking about the community of fishers, uh, you know, my, my career in fishers really started during the annexation, right? During that whole time. We'll talk more about that. <laughs> and I got involved in it there. And then obviously once that fight or that annexation process was over, you know, we had to have an election and they had to draw that Geist area into a district. Uh, where I went and ran against two other folks and, and won that election by 15 votes, and I've been on council since. 15 votes the first time around? First 15 votes. Okay. That's all that was a citywide election, not a district election. Correct. That was for town council, which, uh, even though you represented a district, had to live in the district. That is correct. And the whole town voted on every that town is, council member. Correct. And things have changed since then. Things We've become have changed. a city. Yes. Um, I guess the big question I would ask you now is you've served actually a five-year term because there was a one-year transition period for the city. So you've served on the city council almost five years. C correct. I think if you look at it, that, that one year was a term. So you have to look okay. at that as a term. So a right? second, a one-year yeah. term, but a second term. Right. So, so with that in mind, uh, explain why you decided you wanted to run for another term. Well, I don't think we're done yet, Larry. I think if you take a look at all the the things that were done and, and certainly where I started and one of the things that we wanted to do, I think we've certainly executed on, on that and Scott has certainly done a tremendous job with the help of a very cooperative council to get things done. And and I don't believe we're done yet, right? I, I, I think there's a lot still left to do in our community. We're, we're pushing our community forward and, and making it ripe not only for the next couple, three, four years, but for 20, 30 years 
years down the road. And, and, and there's still much to do, and I'm still having a lot of fun doing it. We'll talk a little about because the vision, I think, that uh, Scott Fadness had when he became mayor, actually it started when he was town manager because people forget those first two projects right around City Hall were approved by the town council, not the city council. That's correct. Uh, let me uh, ask you just to give you a chance, talk about the major issues you are going to be emphasizing as you go into this re-election campaign. Again, I think if you look at it from a, a, a citywide perspective, there's still ma- many areas of the city that, that we're still working on, right? You, you still have the downtown area where we've just announced another very large couple developments on both the south side and the north side of 116th Street. Uh, there will be continuation of uh, cutting in the new South Street uh, to kind of mirror off what we did on North Street. And you can see the development that has occurred off of North Street now and how vibrant that is. You know, but you still have other areas. We still have the Allisonville Corridor. We still have the areas out in the northeast quadrant uh, up along 136th Street that is going to constantly get attention. And a lot of development is being talked about down there. And then really from my perspective as it relates to my district, you know, we have uh, an immense amount of wealth that is down in that district and that needs to be protected, particularly as it relates around the lake. You know, if we lose the lake, if the lake goes toxic, which I'm not saying it's going to, but if it does, I mean, the, the city could take a massive hit in terms of its AV value and what that does. Assess valuation. Assess value, yeah. valuation, correct. And if it does, obviously that is going to affect what taxes can then be collected into the city coffers to deliver services, right? So I am very conscious of what's going on as it relates to the lake activities and the things that we're doing in out there. Since you mentioned Geis Reservoir, which is the lake you talked about, mm-hmm. there's for years I've been hearing at council meetings and amongst elected officials what's to be done about Geis. And if it's neglected, it will go down. And, and some people will say it's got some issues at the moment. But everything I've heard, and I want you to comment on this, is that without a conservancy district, which would include all the municipalities, all the governments, with a stake in the game on Geist Reservoir. It's going to be very difficult to do the cleanup activities that need to be done. I'd like your view on how you think, uh, as a Fisher City Councilman, Fishers possibly along with other municipalities and other governmental entities can come together to make sure that uh, the Geist Lake is preserved. Well, I think you're looking at creating another quasi-government, really, with the Conservancy District. It's proven uh, effective in other parts of the state, up along Wawasee and I believe Lake Lemon and, and probably some other areas as well, where you really have the, the direct stakeholders that are taking control of that asset where they have the most um, locale to. Right. So I, I think it's a it's a terrific idea. I think I still have some questions about it that we still need to work through. I know there there is some legal people working on it and trying to figure out what kind of circumference you're going to grab that's going to go inside of the Conservancy District. But, you know, the lake cleanup is a, is a much bigger issue than just the residents along the lake. I mean, you've got the entire watershed coming in from all the way from Muncie on down that, that creates a lot of that phosphorus problem that everybody talks about. So that's a much larger issue. But I think with the park that we're talking about and the dredging that will occur and the deal that was struck by the administration, Scott's administration, to continue to have uh, the citizens group dredge, okay, that's going to be a big help because if we can make it deeper, right, you have more water, therefore you have more dispersion of of a lot of those things which are bad in the lake. The other side of it is, is that with a conservancy district, they potentially can then limit what is going to be put on top of that lake, the boats, etc. You mentioned Scott, that's Scott mm-hmm. Fadden is the mayor, mm-hmm. and you also men- mentioned dredging and citizens, which is the utility that has jurisdiction over that. 
has promised to dredge. Now, what that means for in layman's terms, I'm a land lover myself, mm-hmm. so I'm not a big, but I've tried to study up on this. Simply means you're getting all the junk away from the area where the park is being planned on, guys. Does that? That's uh, correct. On the north end of the lake, the north end of the lake is a very shallow portion. Mm-hmm. So you can see as you go across the Yolo Bridge, particularly during the summertime, and if we're not getting a lot of rain, it gets very, very shallow. The boats bound there have got to follow channels and they've got to watch out for underground stumps, et cetera, et cetera. By dredging that, you're obviously adding water to that lake and you're giving it, it's more freedom for boaters. There's more water volume in there to go ahead and disperse the the problems. And they're currently dredging, but the problem with the dredging that occurs prior to now is you had to truck it away, right? So there's cost in terms of trucking away. Matter of fact, the cost is probably more than the dredging when you look at it. It certainly is equal. I I don't want to get into the the nitty gritty here, but so by taking now the dredging, because now we're able to take the dredge materials and put them into the park, right? So you don't have to take them anywhere. All you do need to do is push them around the landscape over there and you save a lot of money. My point is then you can do almost double the dredging, right? Because you're not carting the material away. And that's key. And you mentioned the Geist Park, mm-hmm. and uh, that is, is in process of being planned. Um, a lot of excitement about it, but I've also heard some people who have concerns about the way it was financed. Are you comfortable with the way the city has taken on debt to, to buy that property and develop? Uh, a great question. Again, I, I think that when you look at everything overall, if you're going to create a park that's going to be there for now, for the long haul, you know, you're giving the people of Geist a asset that they don't have. You can look at Geist Park, but Geist Park is not on the main body of the lake. And that's the county, county lake. park, which is just on the creek nearby. That's correct. Right up Fall Creek. And it's, you know, there's not, there's no boat access other than kayaks and things like that. And that's almost all you can put on that north end of the lake. I, I think when, when you're looking at, at those type of things is you're going to go ahead and do that. The other thing which it, it does is it prevents housing from going in on that land right, and prevents more boats from going in on top of the lake. Uh, you know, other than the, the lake quality, it's the lake safety, which I have a lot of concerns about. You know, from not only the residents' point of view that are on the lake have boat slips and, and those people who live just off the lake who have a boat slip in their HOAs, you know, it's the people who are coming in on these launch ramps and you come in there on a weekend, I mean, it is mayhem out there. And it, and it potentially is, at times, unsafe, even though we're patrolling and DNR is patrolling and, and all those things. So we need to figure out how to go ahead and try to make that body of water as safe and as clean and as vibrant for that community as possible. Um, you know, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go ahead and take one from Scott, because if you go back and you listen in history of, of all the annexation topics, one of the things that I said that I wanted to do at that site was to build a park, okay, way back when. So I'm going to give Scott the credit for doing it, but really it, it started with that GUO group talking about having a main body, you know, park on the lake. L- look at, at Morse. Morse has one. Eagle Creek has them. Monroe has them. Wawasee has all these lakes have public parks on the body of the water. You know, everybody says, oh, the Geist residents, they're the Geist residents. They're all the hoity-toity Geist residents. But by putting a park there, you're going to activate the rest of the city. The rest of the city is going to have access to that park, which they, they didn't really have access to the main body of the lake unless you went down to the docks. And then yeah. Yeah, the mayor said that that may be the city's last chance to put a park on the lake. And that's one reason he decided to act the way he did. I want to take it one step further because you talked about, you know, the, the, there was a bond that was approved mm-hmm. by the council to finance uh, to finance the the purchase of that land for, mm-hmm. for for Geist, the Geist Lake, or the Geist Park on the lake. You have to get, you'll have to get a new name for it, won't you? Because <laughs> Geist Park's already been taken. But yes. um, just talk in, in, in more general terms about fiscal responsibility. I guess the question I would ask you, and then you go all the way back to 2012 in the town and the conversion to a city, 
Do you feel our, our local municipal government has been acting in a fiscally responsible manner during your tenure? You know, I take it out of my hands and let's put it into a, 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 a body such as Standard & Poor's who, who gives those type of ratings around the country to not only companies but municipalities. And you have Fishers, which is a triple-A bond-rated municipality, the only one in Indiana. The state is also triple-A rated. Right, but two percent of the municipalities around the country are AAA rated. Uh, that's not me saying that. That's Standard and Poor saying that. And, and it's not only from a debt perspective; it's from a, a practices perspective too. You know, what are the the things that we put into place in the municipality to make sure that we maintain our our, our fiscal financial, you, you know. Um, goodness, if you will, you know, how great the city is financially, not only from the way we spend our tax dollars and the way we're collecting tax dollars, but the practices that ensue from there. So again, I just say we're AAA bond rated. I don't know who's going to argue with that statement. Uh, I used to be in the banking world for 20 plus years. I did municipal financing and I would never ask for a set of financials from a AAA bond rated company. The answer was you're approved. How much do you want? And here's your rate. That's essentially where it goes. Now, in saying that, I'm not saying that I, I want to go continue to do things that that are not fiscally prudent, right? I think we need to continue to invest wisely, right? And that's always what I talked about when I first came on to council. I'm not interested in spending money. I'm interested in investing money. And I think if you look at what the investments we've done, particularly down here in downtown where we're sitting, you know, the the, the TIF revenue that's being generated from there is phenomenal. I mean, it's it's if they go look at the TIF reports, those TIFs are spitting out just massive amounts of money for us because we did them correctly, right? It's a very well use of tax dollars and TIF dollars to give back to that community and hold those tax rates very steady. Yeah, TIFs are very hard to explain. I have tried to understand them as best as I can as a layperson. It does create a lot of conversation around the community, but I, I, I think understanding it does is a challenge. And I think uh, what at a recent meeting, I, there was an effort, somebody asked the mayor, it might have been you, could you explain TIFs? And he, it was you, and it, it, he tried, and and it's, uh, and I, I won't get into all of it here, but it's basically a way of financing the project that the property tax money that comes in and the increase in the value of that property. I mean, it's way more complicated than that, but I yes. think that's a thumbnail look at it. Uh, and you can argue on both sides. You obviously feel that the use of TIF and Fishers has been has been uh, one that brought assets to the city. I think that's absolutely. Your, I think we've done. Position. I think we've done TIF. You know, very conservatively, very effectively, very cost consciously, and, and continue to make sure that when we do it, we are delivering a a investment for the community that's going to pay off in spades for the long run. Now, in just about every campaign I have ever covered where people are running for public office, and it's in the state of Indiana, that's where I've lived just about all my life, uh, candidates always say we need better communication with the public. I hear this with a lot of people. Yet, recent example, group of city councilors, some of your colleagues, recently scheduled a public forum to listen to the public. Six people showed up. I think I have that right. All but one, I think, either were candidates for office or running somebody's campaign. Um, why do I bring this up? Uh, because I think there is always this idea that the public needs to have more input and needs to be uh, part of the process. Yet when you call a meeting and six people show up and they're all people with you know involved in a political process already, 
uh, makes you wonder. So I guess the question I would ask you is, what do you think about this? How do you communicate with the public? What would be your view of all this? Well, I can tell you for a fact, I mean, I may be one of the only folks, and I haven't looked lately, that has my cell phone on the city website. So I'm pretty easy to find, and trust me, my residents find me, and I, I take a number of phone calls on a variety of topics. And, and uh, when I am directly communicated with, I directly respond every time. Um, and I feel the engagement there has been excellent. You know, you look at all that the meetings that we go to, because you're at almost every one of our meetings, mm-hmm. right? And, and and you look at what's in the audience, it always amazes me as to what topics will get hot, right? And I always share this with people that, you know, when they ask, well, you know, what, what really kind of gets people's goat, if you will? And I go back to the time when we were still a town and we put out an RFP for trash collection. I remember that. Okay. Yes. And we didn't even say we were going to do it. We just said, let's figure out whether or not it makes sense. So from the city's perspective, we're going, do we want three or four different companies, trucks running around the same neighborhood three Mm -hmm. or four times beating our roads to death, Mm -hmm. right? That was the Mm -hmm. premise that we were looking at it to try to protect the asset. And you could save money for residents. And potentially we could potentially save money for the residents. That was a secondary part of it. So you could get a double hit. And, And I literally probably took 120 phone calls on that one topic. I had one guy yelling at me that he, I was a socialist and a communist for, you know, <laughs> for telling him about collection. trash collection. And, 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 and then he went on and on about this. And he says, plus, I don't like the color of the trash cans. <laughs> and, and, and I was thinking to myself, as I'm talking to this gentleman, what color is my trash can? And, and I didn't know until I got home. So it's interesting. But I, that was one of those items that really kind of raised up. I, I think there are certainly things that people get passionate about. They want to come see. I think think when you look at most of the city stuff that we do, it's very statutory. I mean, you see me up at the, the council chambers. I sit right next to, you know, the guy running the meeting, the president of the council, and, and, and I can look at the agenda and find out what's statutory and what really needs more discussion. And the things that need more discussion typically get more discussion. Those are that are statutory things that we just have to do because the legislature says you're a city and this is a process you have to do. I, I, I Sitting in an audience, I can't believe that's going to be overly, you know, entertaining. So I get it. Um, you know, I, we, we engage on any number of levels through three or four or five different apps that we've that we have for the city now, from the parks to the police to the city to the you know. So we're we're engaging any which way we can. We've got the Fishers Magazine that goes out monthly and it goes to every single resident that that you know the residents pay for through taxes. So uh, I think we are getting that, and I think they certainly see what's going on. I think those that want to get involved, you know, I hope they show up. I was still. I am amazed sometimes what gets a lot of traffic on my website and what doesn't. For example, when Harley Davidson said they were coming in, I couldn't believe how many people had an interest in that. Never would have imagined. But the trash was an interesting example mm-hmm. because I think it was David George who uh, was the council member who really wanted to try that, mm-hmm. and and I found people felt very special about their trash collection. Yes, it's really surprising. Exactly what you experienced. <laughs> yeah. and I thought, this is very a, passionate group. This is a very big surprise. Well, let me ask you this. Um, you have a lot of neighborhoods, obviously, homeowner associations within your, your district. And do you think that the city has been responsible whenever any kind of issue for neighbor safety issues, just the issues neighborhood groups uh, tend to bring up? Uh, do you feel, think that the city has been responsive? I, I think we certainly try to be as responsive as we possibly can. And, and we get answers to those folks when they, when they come to us. All that recent example, um, there was a gentleman along Fall Creek that, that had some issues with a, a left-hand entrance or a, what they would call a bubble blister, okay, that would take cars out and around to the right 
right, if you will, for those making a left-hand turn. And uh, Fall Creek does get a little crowded at, at peak times in the morning and the afternoon. And making left-hand turns against that traffic is a little bit difficult. You know, but we, we gave him a full report of all traffic incidents. We gave him traffic counts. So when I asked the engineering department to go back and look at that, and I got back to this gentleman, Troy Dixon actually was his name. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, Troy said to me, he says, you know, Pete, he said, you didn't give me the passing blister, but you sure gave me enough information that I understand why you guys are doing what you're doing. And, okay. and that's really all I can ask. So, uh, you know, there's, we, we constantly get people saying, hey, people are speeding in my neighborhoods. Hey, I want, you know, gates or I want, you know, speed bumps or I want any of those nature things. And, and those come with some peril. Uh, particularly as it relates to public safety. So as you walk people through that and and, and communicate with them, uh, I think they start to understand. But I'm not getting any of my HOAs yelling at me that the city's not doing enough. Um, if, if they are, they're not calling me. Fall Creek goes right through your district. And I can remember when I was a youngster, I'm showing my age in the 50s. I was very young. My grandfather would take me out to Geist Reservoir, the country in those days. Mm-hmm. And we'd, have, we'd go get a little ice cream cone or something, a little shop. The reason I mention that is if you look at Fall Creek, even though it's been repaved and, and improved, it's the same road that we had in the 50s it, as far as its design. Do you think that there's going to be a day when Fall Creek needs to be looked at? Well, I, I am certainly not a proponent of widening Fall Creek in mm-hmm. any fashion whatsoever. Uh, I think you're, you're in a, a predominantly residential community. Uh, I don't want to add lanes to that. I don't want to go ahead and start taking more land. Uh, I, I don't want the speeds to be increased. Um, you know, the speed in that road is a little bit high in my opinion, but we're following state law from, you know, uh, Indianapolis up, and they're the ones who designed what the speed limit was. Mm-hmm. So as we kind of go through there, I am not a proponent of widening Fall Creek whatsoever. So keep we, it like it is, essentially, but keep it up to date. Yeah, I mean, we added the roundabouts, which I think right. certainly helped uh, in that. We the, the, the bridge certainly, you know, helped out a lot, and mm-hmm. I think the walking trails help out tremendously because it pulls people off of the roads, uh, and, and that that has been finished now. I mean, I think if you go mm-hmm. all the way from Molio Road all the way up through 96th Street, there is a six- or eight-foot walking path everywhere you go there, including a bridge that we added on, and lights along the bridge. So, you know, from a safety perspective and pulling Pulling those people off the roads and adding the roundabouts, I think, was a terrific job. We actually looked at trying to add a roundabout right there where Geist Road cut into, mm-hmm. where the only traffic light is there, quite frankly. And the problem is we'd have to build it out over the lake, and then you're bringing in DNR and everybody else, and it becomes a little problematic <laughs> in the amount of land we have to take. And so that was looked at before it was decided not to. Uh, I, I don't think it's a bad spot for a roundabout because I think it continue to slow people down, uh, but that's not going to occur there, unfortunately. City Council works on a number of things, and you've worked on them for years. Planning, zoning, economic development, you do approvals there. City ordinances, you have jurisdiction over that. You serve on the Plan Commission as one of three City Council members on the Plan Commission. Are there specific issues tied to any of those responsibilities that stand out in your mind over the past, let's say, five years? Oh, I, you know, when you look at Planning Commission, I mean, we're constantly busy looking at virtually every single transaction that's going to occur uh, that has a development going on. Um, when you're looking at, at the UDO standards, the Unified De- Development Code, and, and things of that nature, we continue to try to upgrade that to make sure that, the, you know, the things that you're building in Fishers have a quality of, of the things which are going to sustain themselves for the long run. You know, not letting um, those, those kind of qualities decline, which are not going to be a long-term asset for the city. So, uh, yeah, we've looked at so many things along the lines of planning commission then get to see it again on on council that i I can't even pinpoint one or two we've done so many 
Um, I, you know, certainly the downtown development was a big one. Uh, you know, that was really kind of the flag in the ground. And then we continue to look at it. I mean, you look at kind of the things that happened with uh, like I-Town Church, mm-hmm. right? I-Town was one where there was a lot of engagement by the communities around there that really didn't want I-Town Church to go where the golf course was. Mm-hmm. And, and I think at the end of the day, we solved that problem and we put I-Town Church in a great location. I mean, they're, they're a great community partner and they, they've got a great following and I wish them all the best, but I find that they're in the best location for themselves now rather than where they would have been if, if they kind of continued to shove in the, in that spot. Of course, Gray Eagles kind of had its own issues since then, but we won't get into that, all that. That. <laughs> that, has, that has a number of issues. Because the, uh, the golf course is, to, is scheduled to close, but we, that, we have many other things to talk about. Right. I want to ask about it, uh, something that happened in 2016. This was the, the city council vote on the wheel tax. Mm-hmm. Um, it's an annual charge of $25 per vehicle. You pay it when you renew your license plate and registration. And so really the money didn't start coming in until a little later because of, of that, that lag. But I guess I would ask you this. This, this generates about $2 million a year. I guess it can vary a little bit. How do you think that's worked out so far? Do you, are you, are, do you think that was a good vote? Yes, I do. And, and one of the issues that we face, Larry, is, is when you look at the revenue sources that you have for certain things in the city that are mandated by, by state code, and, and the way you can collect dollars and the money that comes in for those dollars, you know, you've got a gasoline tax, which goes to roads, et cetera. You know, our roads are now, we're not as young a community as we were. And some of the older roads are certainly getting beat up and they need attention, right? And we understand that. But if there's only a certain bucket of money to go to while you're still trying to provide the other core services there, then what's going to happen? Are we going to stop fire protection? Are we going to stop police protection? You know, all those things. To, to pave more roads. So you, it's a balancing act. So one of the things we came up with was the wheel tax. It, it is not a forever tax. We can stop it at any point in time. Uh, we continue to work with the legislature every single term to get more road funding, right? And to let you know, Indiana say, you've got to reinvest in those communities' infrastructure. And certainly Indianapolis is having the same argument, uh, and rightfully so. But those are the things that we face in city government. Right. You've got certain buckets of money they can only use for certain things. And, and that's part of that revenue model that goes with the state. And those are our constraints, which we have. So when looking at it, we said our roads need attention and we need more money to put there. What was the best way to do that? Well, you've got users of the roads. OK, I don't know where else to go. And uh, that, that's what we came up with was was a wheel tax. And I was very supportive of that because we need to continue to improve that infrastructure. Yeah, the city is just uh approves of projects uh, to be done here just the last couple of weeks through the Board of Works. So mm-hmm. I think $1.3 million. So that money is being put to work in neighborhoods. Yeah, all that wheel tax can only be spent on is roads. Correct. It's all can be yes. spent on. It seems like old history. Now, you already referred to this, but uh, you were spokesperson for Guy Citizens United. I think I got that Guy's right. United Opposition. Okay, I was close. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Didn't quite get it right. But uh, at that time, the people in the Geist area were fighting annexation by the town of Fishers. That all eventually got settled when property tax caps were approved because that really kind of negated the issue. So uh, the annexation did happen. But I want, we've talked about this before, but I'm going to give you another chance just to talk about this briefly. You went from being an outsider who was trying to push change from the outside. And now since 2012, you've been an insider and trying to work from the inside. Uh, talk about the differences in those two roles and how you made that transition. Well, I, I think, first of all, just on a, on a high-level deal, you, you know, I was taught by my father, okay, that you could be the guy standing outside of the brick building throwing rocks at it, or you can be the guy inside trying to facilitate change 
and, and if and if you had good ideas and you needed to be heard, better to be heard from inside the building and outside of the building. So I've always taken that role. I've, I've, I've been an activist back since I was in college. You know, that's who I was. I was on student council. I was president of my fraternity. I can't not be involved in that. I, I believe at the core of me that I need to, to believe that I, I leave this planet, and we all are at some point, better than I found it. And, and I need to show my kids, okay, that you need to go back and participate in the place where you live. And, and I can't tell you how ingrained that is in me. And I believe that to my soul. And it, it was really given to me by my dad. And he passed away probably 18 years ago, miss him every day, mm-hmm. super, super bright guy. And it's at that level. So when I came into Geist, and I had a house built, and it was assessed very badly in the wrong way for me. And then three days later, Fishers came in and said they were annexing us. And then I looked at the difference in property taxes on a bad assessment. I said, whoa, I got to do something about this. That's how I got myself involved there. And then I guess I was pushed to the front of this group because I'm not afraid of a camera or a microphone and I'm not short of an opinion. So that's really how I got there. And it really wasn't so much – it was fighting to make sure that things were done correctly and we were put in the loop. Uh, I think Fisher's made a, a, a big mistake. They got too big for their britches trying to bite off more than they could chew with Geist. Uh, I think if they were smart um, or smarter, uh, and I think they would have taken it off neighbor by neighborhood, then you couldn't have fought it. It would have been mm-hmm. virtually impossible, and it would have been a m- much faster process. They would have spent a lot less money. But the, the Geist people are, are very intelligent people. They, they, they like to be involved. They care about their community. So it was pretty easy to go ahead and rally that troop to go ahead and fight that. And you're absolutely correct. You know, Governor Daniels at that point in the legislature fixed the money problem. But at that point, there was still a bunch of frayed nerves over things. Mm-hmm. So that, that was part of the problem in terms of the arrogance that they had. And I think that was the main problem that got in the way. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we took it beyond the one, two, three property tax cap because it lasted another year and a half after that until we made it to court. So, uh, but you're right, that really solved most of the problems. Let me end this up as I always end up candidate uh, interviews. Uh, imagine I'm one of your constituents considering uh, voting for you for re-election. I'm looking at you and your opponent. Uh, just give me a minute or two and tell me why I should vote for you. Well, I think the body of work that I have is it, it's very easy to see. Uh, I think that I continue to represent the Geist area and the entire Fishers area. I, I don't look at myself as only a Geist person, right? We, we need to make sure that the city continues to be vibrant because I think a vibrant city is going to go ahead and continue to, to be a vibrant Geist. So, again, my, my core being is just that I want to continue to move this city forward and, and uh, continue to watch out for my constituents both in Geist and outside of Geist to make sure that we're, we're making Fishers the best place that can be. Pete Peterson is running for re-election as the incumbent city councilman in the southeast district of the city. Pete, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you, Larry. My thanks to Pete Peterson for joining me on the podcast to talk about his re-election campaign. Remember, election day is Tuesday, May 7th. This is the Larry N. Fishers podcast. My name is Larry Lannon. I write the LarryNFishers.com local news blog from Fishers, Indiana, a suburban community northeast of Indianapolis. Thanks for listening. We'll talk again.